Today's episode of Home Row is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word, and it also inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is equally suited for serious study or for sharing with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. I'm I'm writing. You know how to write. Without the without the without the writing, you have nothing. I'm writing. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Home Row, and I'm your host Jeff Metters. It's good to be back on the airwaves as always. And today we've got a special guest on the show, like we do every single week, and this is the author. Mark Ward. Dr. Ward works for Lexham Press and Logos, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, it's kind of complicated. Lexham Press is the publishing arm of Faith Life, makers of Logos Bible software. I also work for our original content department, and that's even more complicated, but that's all anybody needs to know. Okay, okay, great. So, Mark, do you live now? Where do you live? Where, where's I Logos live in based out of? Mount Vernon, Washington, okay. and Logos is based in Bellingham, Washington. So I'm about an hour north of Seattle, and um, Faith Life is about an hour and a half, uh, coming up on two hours north of Seattle. Gotcha. Okay. So what? Okay. Yeah. Clarify for me in case I don't. I missed it. What is the relationship between Faith Life and Logos? Logos. It was the name of the company for a long time because it was effectively the only product that we made. But in recent years, we've begun putting out other products that also fulfill our mission to use technology to equip the church to grow in the light of the Bible. So we have church websites and faith life giving, you know, electronic giving for churches, which my church uses, sermon hosting and uh, and proclaim, uh, which is really quite a nice piece of software, like church presentation software. And we also are putting out our own books through Lexham Press, some of which are more Logos Bible software focused, some of which are just pretty standard evangelical, you know, academic-y titles. Um, I shouldn't say they're standard titles. They're really awesome titles. But since we're doing so many things, we needed a, a company name that encompassed them all. So Faith Life is the name of the company, and Logos is still one of our major products, but other things are coming up in the wings. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, let's see if we can settle an age-old debate here uh, live on the podcast. Logos versus Logos? Yes. So what, what is it? I actually wrote a—I <laughs> submitted back in the day when the Babylon Bee—are you familiar with Babylon Bee? Oh, yeah. So yes. they, you know, when they used to take submissions, I wrote one article for them that they took a while back, and then I, I wrote another one um, based out of Bellingham, Washington, and that Logos employees were battling over the pronunciation and that no one could agree, and that a rift was happening in the company over how I to read pronounce that. it. Yeah. So, what? Uh, where, where are we? Well, you happen to have asked the one person who has written the definitive oh, statement. Look at that on this issue for the Logos blog. And I say Logos um, because that's what's most natural to me. But the simple answer, and I learned this on the first day that I came to the company, is that most people who are in our core market have taken Greek or have some familiarity with it. And in the traditional Erasmian system for pronouncing Koine Greek, the Omicrons, the, there are two Omicrons in the word Logos, they are pronounced like short O's rather than logos, you got logos. So anybody who knows this world and lives in it is going to most naturally say logos. But if you say that to people who don't live in that world, who haven't taken Greek, and we want to serve the whole church. Right. Uh, so that includes a lot of people who to whom the Lord has not given the opportunity to learn Greek. They're going to be confused. It might sound to them like we're saying L-A-G-A-S if we say logos. So right. we tend to say logos in situations in which we expect uh, that the audience will include people who don't um, have any Greek knowledge. So the answer is it really it can be either. Uh. I don't yeah, I don't tend to like it when people mix it up like Lagos or Logos. Yeah. I tend to like uh, consistency there, but um, the main two options are Logos and Logos. Yeah, as other, I'm going to try to come up with some other alternate pronunciations. 
that we can just start really confusing everybody. Yeah, I met somebody from Lagos, Nigeria at, at the Houston Space Center not too long ago, and there's an option for you. Sometimes you people do actually get it mixed up with, uh, I think it's Lagos, like Nigeria. No, yeah, there there are other options I've heard, and I can't even remember them all. It, it, actually, I've heard Bob Pritchett, the CEO, say that this is really not a good name for a company because so many other people have it and because it's capable of being pronounced so many ways. Right. Oh, well, we're stuck with it now. Yeah, yeah the, the ship has sailed. Lajas, that'd be one. Uh-huh. Um, but, hey, the, the debate has been settled. We've got clarification. Lagos, logos, it makes, it makes sense. Or logos. At least no one says logos. <laughs> I think I have heard that. Oh, boy. Yeah. It happens. Okay, so Mark is a writer. He's um, a scholar, and he's written a book uh, that you may have seen called Authorized uh, about the King James Version, which we're going to talk about um, here in a little bit. So, Mark, for I know we kind of went through it a little bit already, but, but for the people out there who don't know who you are and, and what you do, um, uh, why don't you just give us a little background about who you are and what you do for Faith Life and Lagos? Yeah, my technical title is Academic Editor at Lexham Press, and that involves both writing and editing. I am helping shepherd projects that are supposed to wind up in either Logos Bible Software or in some of our other offerings. So right now we're working on a special new project that I can't give all the details about that is going to actually be um, teaching the Gospels to kids. Wow. And I have just thoroughly enjoyed I mean, getting paid. I mean, it's just incredible to get paid to study the Bible, summarize it for kids, uh, write it up. I'm actually writing it for 11 to 14-year-olds and uh, I'm pretty well writing a harmony of the Gospels for them based on the biblical events navigator that's already in Logos Bible software. Before that, last year, my big project was the Lexham Survey of Theology, which was more focused on uh, Logos Bible Software, although it's also also going to come out in print. I was editing submissions from theologians such as John Frame, uh, Gerald Bray, Fred Zaspel, others that your listening audience might be familiar with, and they were providing short summaries of every major topic of systematic theology, all 243 of them, I think, that we mapped out. Wow. And at the end of every one of these short articles, you have also key verses and then recommended reading. And then an index of your systematic theologies, which is actually extremely cool because it's sort of like now we have the Bible reference system for systematics. You want to look up perspicuity. You want to look up the image of God, as I was doing this morning on the bus, and I use my own project. Um, I, I just feel really privileged and blessed to be uh, paid a salary to serve the church. And I was thinking, I've, I've been doing that. I've been a full-time writer of some kind since 2001, and I, I'm just so grateful to the Lord. It's really, really fun. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Now, what's something that you do up there in, in Washington for fun when, when you're not working on, uh, on big projects and you're not working on— uh, all these complicated, uh, organized things there for, for Logos? Well, I play super kickball with my kids, and we are collecting chickens and stray animals from around the neighborhood. Okay. We now have a cat that we did not choose and another chicken that just wandered onto our property. And my kids are 9, 7, and 4, so I have a lot of fun with them. But me personally, my release is Ultimate Frisbee, and I play almost every Tuesday night out in a nearby town with my buddies and I'm a handler, and there's just nothing like the feeling of throwing that perfect throw that gets right into your receiver's right. hands and over the defense for a touchdown. Okay, I so, love it. So if people aren't that familiar with Ultimate Frisbee, I, I know what it is, um, but for people out there who don't know, like, what is he talking about? What is Ultimate Frisbee? Um, everybody thinks it's disc golf. Even when I explain it, yeah, it's they different. Say, so yeah. like, where are the baskets with chains? And yeah, say, not, no, they're not even no, close. No. They're not even the same thing at all. It's more like football or even soccer where you got this long field and you're going back and forth and you are trying to throw the disc to your teammate in the end zone like football, but you can't run with it. So once you catch it, you have to stand still and throw it from there to one of your teammates. And I, I love the throwing. A handler is like a quarterback. Um, so there are actually multiple different throws that you have in um, in Ultimate. And uh, my favorite is the no-look flick. 
I use it all the time. Okay. And the defense almost always gets fooled. The no-look flick. Okay, so for mm-hmm. people out there who don't know uh, what Ultimate Frisbee is, just look in your show notes. I'm putting a link to the show notes. You just scroll at the bottom of your podcast app, and you'll see a link there that says About Ultimate and you can go read about Ultimate Frisbee. You can really, you just need a Frisbee into a group of friends and you can play. It's a lot of fun. A lot of running. If you don't like a lot of running, then you're not going to like Ultimate Frisbee. So right. get, get ready for, for some running. But yeah, we played a ton of that in college ministry. Um, really lots of fun. I, I stick to basketball nowadays. I, it just, I have to have something. Otherwise, I won't exercise. I yeah. have to have some kind of competition to motivate me. I don't know what that says about me. No, I think you're right. You know, we, my wife and I go to this gym uh, together right around the corner from our house and they give you these heart rate monitors and they, they put you up on the board so you can see your heart rate, uh, how many points you're mm. earning between your, mm-hmm. your low kind of resting and your max heart rate mm-hmm. and you get points during the workout. And so they, there's a leaderboard and my wife and I, we can see where we're at on the points and we're trying to beat each other and uh, you know, she beats me most of the time. But I did finally beat her the other day. I beat her by point four, and it was glorious. Uh, to to shift it back to writing, my wife always beats me at Scrabble and words with friends. Oh, mine too. Yeah, what kind of writer am I? I know, you know but... I'm horrible. I cannot think of anything. Even like we tried to play uh, Bananagrams the other night with with my daughter who's ten, and they're both smoking me, and I just I don't know what it is. Yeah, I, I don't either. Like when when I need words for writing, they come to me. Praise God, they they just come, and it's I think it's a gift. Uh, but when I'm in words with friends, they don't come. No, I'm, when I'm forced to use these letters, I just can't think of anything. Like this is not how writing works. This is a different. This is a different skill set all all together. There's there's no. That doubt. makes me feel better that you have the same experience. <laughs> That'd be a good question. I'm going to start asking writers now. And are you also terrible at words with friends and Scrapple? That's that's going to be a new poll that I'm going to do on Twitter also. Okay, so obviously you're a writer. That's why you're here. That's why everyone comes on the show. They're a writer. And one question I always ask is, so how did you become a writer? Some of my guests, they're little boys and are a little girl and they're tinkering at their desk, uh, writing short stories and stapling them together at 10 years old. Some of them, like myself, didn't realize that they had a, a itch and a gift for writing till college. Uh, how did you become a writer, Mark? I was um, listening, I think I was reading Rod Dreher at some point in the last couple of years, and he said, what makes you a writer is two things, deadlines and a paycheck. So I became a writer in 2001 when I was given a job that involved deadlines and a paycheck. There you go. And I've had deadlines and paychecks. Again, praise God. I really just am so grateful. What, what, like living the dream, I really am. For all these years now, 18 years, I've written various kinds of things. I started out as a research assistant in a research center at the Bob Jones University Library where we were summarizing articles and uh, writing up little abstracts for people to use. And that barely counts as writing, but I was writing. And my boss was, this is actually, really is answering your your, your question. Um, He was the former head of editorial at BJU Press. And he was a scholar with a PhD himself. He was one of my teachers as well. He kind of taught as an adjunct and led this research center. And uh, he noticed my writing and he never he didn't really say anything, but he asked me to edit his own scholarly papers that he would go give at what's called the Bible Faculty Summit. It's like this small, small version of ETS. I'm actually now the president of that very organization and I believe in its mission. Uh, And that like I could tell like the reason he picked me rather than the other guys who are smart guys um, that he must have seen something. And that that actually really meant a lot to me. I thought, hmm, I, you know, I, this former head of editorial is seeing something in my writing. Right. And he also handed me a newsletter job that I started at way too young of an age. These newsletters were going out to churches all around the country uh, from Bob Jones. And, and I was summarizing news and editorializing just a little bit in pretty much every piece um, at starting at age, uh, I guess I was 22, 
But that really started me into the uh, the world of paychecks and deadlines and and having my own voice. Uh, and then as that developed over the years and I got some more confidence and some good editing, that's another f- feature of being a quote unquote real writer, I think, is um, is being edited. Um, I felt led of the Lord to start a blog. And I waited a long time. I was way into grad school before I did this because I would read people's stuff and say, I want to make sure I'm actually providing value to people. I wanted to be far enough along in my education that I could say something that would be edifying to them. And so in 2008, I started and that also ended up being so helpful to me. I didn't really know. I just had that itch and I had to do it. And so I started writing and I've used that, um, uh, boy, that cast of mind that it takes to be a blogger as a writer in so many different ways. Well, I could go on and on, but that's the basic story. Yeah, I love that. You know, there's a constant thread that I hear interview after interview and the experience of my own life, too, that there was somebody along the way, one or two people who said, hey, I noticed something or Hey, you, you should keep doing this. And so I think, you know, people out there who are wondering, am I a writer? Um, listen and see if people are encouraging you. And if you, if, and on the flip side, man, be sure to encourage other writers that you see who, you know, may have a gift because I'm sure they feel discouraged like we often do. And so it's good to encourage others along the way. Yeah. And on the flip flip side, I mean, somebody has to say this. If nobody is encouraging you, you know, it is possible <laughs> that this is not your gifting. Yeah. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say it compassionately because there's got to be something that the Lord has given you as a gift to serve in his church. Um, and, and it's, you know, for me, it wasn't really that somebody said, you know, this is good. You should keep doing this. In fact, I was sort of hoping for my professors to do that. And they kind of really didn't until way, way right. deep into the process um, it was just this subtle encouragement. And then subsequent to that, I would, I did get, you know, encouraging notes from people when my writing started to get out further. So I ended up getting a job for BJU Press, and they have a whole suite of K-12 through textbooks, all written from a biblical worldview. And I had the privilege of being not only the Bible textbook coordinator and author, for 7th through 12th grade, but also I was on the Biblical Worldview team. Sometimes we called it the Bible Integration Team, and that was really, really wonderful. I was more the communicator on the team and less the thinker, though um, I'd like to think that I was able to uh, follow what my betters were saying there, and that was just a very fruitful time for me. And For nine years, I wrote several textbooks, and the most recent one, the the final one I wrote before I left to come to faith life was Biblical Worldview, Creation, Fall, Redemption. I didn't write every word. I wrote most of the chapters and edited the rest. And that that was like the, the capstone of my time there. And I saw that, again, praise God. I don't mean to say that tritely. I, I just feel it so sincerely. I was capable of doing bigger writing projects. And um, and it not falling apart. I remember when I first was writing sermons, I just could not keep the thread together in my mm. mind from beginning to end. And it was just like I had to push and push and push against that barrier over a long period of time before I could do that. Blogging helped me because you can write such shorter pieces. Right. I could handle that. Uh, but it was when I was finally able to push past that that I felt like, okay, now I can call myself a writer. I've done it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when I think about, you know, you mentioned deadlines a lot, and this is one thing that, that comes up pretty frequently, is deadlines are actually our our friend. They're, they're not our enemy, even though right. they may seem like a frenemy, but we need them. So when you think about your deadlines and the frequency of them in any project, um, you know, sometimes I think we can tend to gravitate. I know on the show, I can tend to gravitate towards talking about book deadlines and well, there's much more to writing and much more writing deadlines than just books. You've got blog posts. I know you've written, you know, frequently over at the the Logos blog and and all those things. And so there's deadlines. And so how do you manage the deadlines? Um, What are your writing habits like when you're in a project that has a deadline looming over you? 
Uh, I have written, boy, around 200 articles for various Faith Life publications, especially for the Logos blog. Most of them were 1,500 to 2,000 words about biblical studies in some way. They frequently would bring in Logos Bible software. You know, that was kind of why I was hired. Um, and yeah, I had two to three deadlines a week for about the first two, two and a half years that I was at the company. And I remember at the beginning having a lot of fun with this, but then starting to worry like, oh man, am I really going to be able to keep this up? Yeah, uh, those are long are, pieces too. Yeah. Where are these ideas going to come from? Um, but I found that when the Lord gifts you, he, he gives you what you need and ideas would just come. Um, I do... I did learn probably the key practical advice for your question is I learned to file ideas away and I learned the skill prior to that, which is recognizing when an idea is article worthy. Sometimes you have such a small idea that you really need another one or two in order to make an article and you need to find the overarching theme that can fit them all. But I just... I actually, many years ago, when I was starting out as a very fresh seminary student, my pastor at the time, I was in his church for 18 years in South Carolina. He is a legendary, world-class Bible expositor, big-time reader, and he is a writer, though we've begged him to write books, and he just he just doesn't think anybody will ever publish them. But um, I'm still working on that. Anyway, he said he gave us his system for filing away sermon illustrations in the olden days in which he started his ministry in the 70s. He had a wide margin Bible and he would basically write little references next to, you know, First Peter 3, 5 or John 3, 16, whatever, that would take him right to books and page numbers where there were illustrations he could use. Mm. And that cast of mind because I just listened to him and started doing that, although I very quickly switched from paper to electronic means, that really has stood me in good stead. I'm always filing away these little tidbits. And I now use Ulysses, yeah. uh, a markdown writing app, which to me, that's like the best candy store there is. When I fire up Ulysses on any device, I just get overwhelmed with dopamine shots. Yes. Because it organizes everything for me and it keeps it really simple so I don't have to worry about um, copying formatting in and out and I can publish out to any you know HTML or PDF or Word doc or whatever but the real key is it's got this three panel system where it you know kind of like Mac uh, finder where um, from left to right I go from higher to lower levels of organization that has proven to be the key for me yeah. filing things away in a way I can get back to them. Yeah. I love Ulysses. I'm a huge fan. Um, I was using another one kind of like it before. And then I saw Charlie's was recommending this one and I thought, well, I'm going to, if, if it's good enough for Charlie's, it's definitely gonna be good enough for me. And I remember checking it out short. I had heard about it, but didn't want to spend the money. Then he shared it. It's like, okay, I'm going to dive in, did the trial. I was hooked. I almost had them become a sponsor of the show. Uh, we got really close, but it, things things fell apart at, at the end. But I love it in, in the organizing panel. I mean, I have all my writing in here. I have sermons. I've got, um, I have a little category called cooking where there are ideas that are, you know, I'm starting to work on it. I'm typing it up. It's not finished. Then I have one called editing. Like, okay, this one's now it's in the editing stage. I need to move it along. And then I've got just all my blog posts here. I've got different sites I write for. I see He Reads Truth, Desiring God, the Gospel Coalition for the Church. I have a Home Row notes, podcasting notes, uh, book proposals in here. Um, anything and everything you could think of. And then just an inbox filled with random who's a what's it's and whatever's. Just uh, a, a eulogy I gave uh, at a funeral recently. Um, an email that I needed to make sure was, okay, I can't just write this in my email program, this has to be done really well and not sent out on accident, um, before it's ready. And I, I just use it for everything. So I'm a huge proponent of Ulysses way better than Microsoft word or anything out there. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can get on yeah. your iPad, your iPhone. I mean, it's amazing. Right. Yeah. I'm so totally with you and everything that you said. And this is silly, but I love having little icons that I can choose for every different project oh, yeah. totally. kind of project. 
my only complaint about Ulysses, and I've been meaning to contact them because it's literally the only problem I have with it, is when I have a lot of stuff in there, and when I hit Command-O to search, I know that I have a piece in there that includes the word anomy, and I type anomy and nothing comes up. And then I type another word nearby and it finds it. And then I see the Hmm. word anomy. I type that. Why didn't that come up? I don't know why. Strange. Yeah. I would recommend, too, people um, get it as part of set app because there are a lot of other nice apps. And it's kind of like the Netflix for Mac apps. And maybe in the show notes, you'll let me use my referral link. Sure. Why not? I I don't have one. So, yeah. So check out the... I, you know, I've looked into set app before and I already have a subscription to Ulysses and I thought, Oh man, I wish I would have had the, the set app, but I don't know if I can. You can transfer it. Yeah. Okay. That, that might be yeah, worth you, looking into. There's a lot of neat little apps in there. And for writers, here you go. I get really techy on this stuff. I do everything with keyboard shortcuts. So this doesn't work so well on the iPad, but I've got one app in set app called paste that, um, organizes my clipboard for me just keeps everything that i copy and i've i've seen those things before and felt like it's just too much mental strain for me to use it but they came up with the right ui where it pops up at the bottom of the screen and i use it all the time because i have to copy several things at once to the clipboard and then you know go back and paste them Um, and then another one is called text soap and you can run basically little regex you know text cleanup things and I use that all the time because when you're working in Markdown, you have real simplicity with find and replace, um, which I find to be uh, helpful over and over again in all the kinds of writing that I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's uh, Pro Writing Aid is on here. It's a grammar and uh, editor kind of readability thing. I've used that before in the past. It's really good. I use Grammarly extensively now. Um, just I find I find Pro Writing Aid to be kind of clunky to use and, and, and not my favorite. But man, yeah, set app, check that out. And yeah, definitely. I will, I'd love to use your, uh, your, your referral code in there to help, help people out and, and help you out too. That's now, great. Yeah. Go ahead. Now let's, let's talk about, um, uh, your, your book authorized. So it's all about the misuse and the use of the King James Bible. Are, are there debates around the King James Bible? Is there, is there any drama or tension over that? Um, if you have ever written for the Babylon Bee, like you said, then I know you're joking yes. because somebody over there has their finger on that pulse. And now, of course, I've become the repository for my friends. Like they'll send me all these links to Babylon Bee, like right. five friends will send this to me. And I've just learned to say, oh, thanks. You know, I don't mention that I've gotten it from other friends already. But um, yes, there's a huge debate. And I grew up uh, in my key formative high school years in a King James only church. And actually, I had a really positive experience. I went to their Christian school, and I still count those teachers and my principal there, who all of whom are still involved in Christian education. Two of my key teachers just uh, transferred after like 25 years to a different wow. Christian school. But faithful, godly, wonderful people. One of them, the principal, taught me Latin in eighth grade, and that has changed my life. Yeah, It, it started, you know, stoking the major skills that ended up going into authorized. So I've never been able to be bitter against those people. It just, it was so evidently not possible. They loved me. But of course, I did come to disagree with them over the King James. They insist that the King James Version is the only really valid English Bible translation. And when that's all you know, and everybody in your community and your circle of churches talks that way, there really isn't much pressure on you to change, and you don't see any reason to, you know, even consider it. But I, and I was in that spot. I accepted what my pastor told me, and I believed him to be trustworthy, and I still do. You know, as far as integrity goes, he had it. He was a good man, but I now recognize he was listening to people that he shouldn't have been listening to, people who um, were in the in the words of the pastorals, making confident assertions about things of which they were ignorant. Mm. People who are making uh, claims about the Greek New Testament um, who can't read Greek really ought to see that that's a problem. But I, I looked at the world of the King James only Christians and thought, you know, if I try to wade in to the textual criticism debate, which is where they mostly want to have the debate, 
Um, and if I say, well, you should listen to me because I have a PhD and I, I can actually read Greek, that's just going to blow them off. You know, right. they're, they're going to put up a wall. And I completely understand that. If someone came in to my world and told me you should listen to me because I have more education, I have the same flesh that everybody does, and I, I'd be putting up a wall. You know, I have to admit it. So I wanted to look for a way that I could reach lay people. And I started to recognize, you know, I don't even need to talk about textual criticism because I actually don't care what Greek New Testament anybody uses because the differences are not significant. It's the Textus Receptus folks, the people who, you know, that's the the uh, Greek New Testament underlying the King James New Testament. Um, it's they who say that the differences are massive and significant. I don't think they are. So if somebody wants to use the New King James or the modern English version, which is based on the very same Greek New Testament that the King James is, I'm fine with that. So why should we fight about that whatsoever? And I realized what I'm really concerned about in the King James debate is English understandability, because I was involved in evangelism uh, on the wrong side of the tracks for 15 years in South Carolina. I was an outreach pastor. I was a youth worker. I was a Bible club cookie hander outer. And I listened to countless kids give memory verses. And we often, we tended to use the, the New American Standard at that church, but the kids couldn't even understand that. Right. And I'm not, and I'm not saying it's because they were, it's not because they were unregenerated. I mean, that was a problem enough, but I'm just talking about the English words. Yeah, I would ask comprehension, them, yeah. what does it mean? I was never content to teach a verse, to just get them to memorize it. Because I, I never knew if I was going to see these kids ever again. I want them to understand and over and over and over again, whether I had to use the King James in a ministry or the New American Standard, I found the kids did not understand. The adults did not understand. The teens did not understand. Uh, and I started to see that is the problem. And that is ultimately why I ended up writing the book. Well, I guess what, what do you hope um, people come away from when they, when, they, when they read the book? And I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people definitely go and, and check out Mark's book. Um, so what, what are you hoping that people... Obviously, we don't want to, and I know this isn't your intention in your heart, we don't want to become anti-King James uh, no. v- version people. Um, but of course, you know, people always end up in that camp. They always take the extreme position on, on all kinds of things. So I guess, what, what is your hope for the average reader who's, who's interested in, in the book? What, what do you hope they walk away from? With it? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you said that. I, I'm not telling anybody to chuck the King James. I haven't. It would be impossible for me to do so because I've memorized dozens if not hundreds of verses and phrases from the King James Version. I'm not trying to expunge those from my memory. Um, But what I would say I want people to take out of this is the principle of 1 Corinthians 14. In that first couple paragraphs of the chapter, Paul repeatedly appeals to this principle, edification requires intelligibility. Now, I'm a big-time word nerd, in part because, yes, I'm a writer, in part because I'm just weird, but I'm, and I love linguistics. And I started to recognize that there are two key kinds of problems for readability rather than just the one that pretty well everybody, even the King James only folks recognizes. And it was my work in linguistics that helped me see this. And I've tried to popularize this by giving two labels to these kinds of problems. One is dead words. This is the kind that everybody recognizes. These are words we know we don't know, like besom, chambering, and emerald. We never use those words in contemporary English. You don't? I mean, I, I did an email this morning, I, I feel like. <laughs> uh, well, then I don't know how you lose at Words with Friends. Then, uh, yeah, you're right. So um, I... Yeah. <laughs> dead words. Sorry. I just, dead I words. No problem. I was trying to think of some clever comeback there. And, you know, I honestly think the reason I can't is I care so much about this issue. <laughs> I get in sobriety mode and I really want to be careful not to mock. Yeah, uh, totally. No, no, Babylon B can do it. And it is hilarious. And when you talk about the, eight, the NIV positive pastor, like, some you know some Christian sins, including the divisiveness that is King James onlyism, they need satire to poke fun at them. But right. that's not my calling. Um, I take this very seriously because people I love are caught up in a doctrinal error, saying that the King James is the only translation we should use, or even talking like it itself is perfect or you know inspired. 
It's very, very sad. So I, I want to win these people. I want to persuade them. I don't want to just score points. So the, the concept of dead words is one they already recognize. Um, and I say, I don't think people should have to look up words in a dictionary to read their Bible if common equivalents are available. So instead of besom, we should just be able to say broom. Instead of emerald, we should just be able to say tumor. Instead of chambering, we should be able to say immorality. Um, I'm not trying to dumb down the Bible. I'm just trying to honor Paul's principle. Edification requires intelligibility. And the King James only folks would always say, and I said this, hey, you lazy bones, why don't you just go open up a dictionary? What's right. so hard about that? I even had one King James only man who is the top most credentialed scholar in that world. He's got a genuine PhD. He said it's never been easier to read the King James Version because now we have you know, dictionaries on our smartphones in our pockets. Hmm. Um, I think that's wrong on quite a number of levels. Uh, the main one is First Corinthians 14. But okay, then the second major concept I want people to come come out with, and this is this is actually the top maybe addition I've made to the debate. Um, this is not new to me, but I've given it a label and given uh, put it on a popular level that I think is more accessible than than I've seen elsewhere. And that would be the concept of false friends. These are words that we don't know we don't know. And it's not just words, it's phrases, it's punctuation marks, it's uh, syntax. And we read past it in the King James and we don't realize that we're misunderstanding it because we still use those punctuation marks, those words. We just use them in a different way than they did back in 1611. So I'm not criticizing the King James translators whatsoever. I don't say a single negative word about the King James or its translation decisions in my book. I don't need to. And I don't think modern people are dummies or lazy for misunderstanding. I think it's just the natural effect of the the process that God apparently play, you know, put into language. All languages change. So let me turn it back on you here, J.A. Yeah, yeah please, yeah. Um, uh, 1 Kings 18.21 is First kind Kings. of my stock example. You don't need to look it up, but you okay. can in the King James. Um I'm going to ask you a question about what I take to be a false friend. All right, here we did go. Did you grow up using the King James Version? Uh, no. If I did, it was very short. The The Bible I remember the most is uh, New American Standard. Okay. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah is on Mount Carmel in this contest with the priests of Baal. And he says to the Israelites who are standing by watching, he says, How long halt ye, H-A-L-T, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. What does halt mean? What would you say? Well, I mean, today I would say wait or uh, stop. Uh, what, yeah, what stops you? Uh, what keeps you? Um, something like that, I guess. Yeah. I, I know I'm going to be wrong already. It feels like it, but well, this is not a gotcha question, because remember I said I'm not trying – I'm not saying that we're dummies for misunderstanding. That is exactly the way I understood the passage. I memorized it. I heard it preached many times. It's this dramatic you know, scene that preachers love to reach for, as well they should. Um, but I was writing a textbook for BJU Press. I've actually got the cover hanging on my wall. Uh, Bible Truths, the story of the Old Testament, and I was surveying this story, and I was checking other translations, and I read in the ESV – uh, Elijah says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? And I thought that that can't be right. You know, the King James translators are not dummies. They wouldn't say stop if it meant limp. So I looked at the Hebrew and the Hebrew word was very clearly limp. And I just couldn't figure it out. Then suddenly it hit me. Ah, in the New Testament, in the King James, Jesus heals the halt and the blind, hmm. the halt being the lame. In 1611, Halt in a context like that meant limp. So the King James translators had not made an error. I I can't blame myself either because why should I have to keep up with the way English used to be four and five hundred years ago? That's right, yeah. It's not my fault either. It's just language change. And once I saw that, and then later on from my favorite linguist, John McWhorter, on whose podcast I got to go to talk about my book, and that was like one of the best days of my life. Um, I, uh, I got this label false friends for that. Then I started, once mm. you have a label for something, you start seeing it in places Yeah, and that's what happened to me. And ultimately I realized I need to write a book about this. Yeah, that's great. I, I think one of the examples that comes to my mind is the suffer the little children 
to to come to me is I think that's in the King James. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Would that be another false friend that you're thinking about? Yeah. And that's a great example because it would be a false friend to some people and not to others. I think I, that was not a false friend to me because the, our modern sense of the word suffering so clearly doesn't work there right. that I knew it had to mean permit. You can just tell by context, you know, you could have put random syllables in there like ergonomok the little children to come to me and you would still pick it up from context. But not everybody is the skilled reader who can do that. Why would you unnecessarily place a, you know, a stumbling block in the poorer reader's way? People will be, you know, tripped up by that word suffer. Um, I was more focused on words that even highly educated people just could not be expected yeah. to have kept up with the history of, but that's, you know, uh, some, uh, one word could be a false friend for one person and not for another, uh, because reading skill does come into this. Yeah, man, it's so fascinating. So when you think about the, the positive and the negative, um, or I guess not, I don't know, I want to fr- frame it that way. The changes of the, the English language over the years and some of the amazing elements that the King James brought and still brings to the English language and some of the hurdles that, that it brings now today, what lessons are there in there for writers? Um, obviously there's huge, huge lesson for us in writing with intelligibility. Um, but when you think about how, you know, the King James, what lessons does the KJV translation, uh, bring to writers today? Well, I think there's a couple, one would be uh, actually drawn from Christopher Hitchens of all people, but this is kind of well known. He was praising, now here's an atheist, now deceased. He was praising the King James Version, saying that we shouldn't dumb it down, in his words. We shouldn't skip to uh, modern versions because it provided a stock of illusions for our culture. And that is abundantly true. In the New York Times today, I would be nearly certain that there is some headline somewhere, some line somewhere, that at least evokes a King James phrase. And... This is probably from people who haven't even read the King James Version. This is what happens with canonical texts like that, like Shakespeare, you know, culturally canonical texts. And that's a good thing. And I'm glad it's happened. And I love the King James for that reason. But I think the major lesson of my book for writers um, would come in the area of linguistics. And I'd like to think that word people would be able to follow this or should have interest in understanding this. That is, okay, let me, let me give an example on the flip side here. Um, I was, I was uh, communicating with a King James-only person who was intelligent and um, courteous to me on Facebook. And I've, a lot of those people have come out of the woodwork. You know, they're not, they're not all the rabble-rousers that you sometimes think if you just run into Peter Ruckman. Um, the people that raised me certainly weren't. Anyway, um, he was telling me, we were talking about Beowulf, which is, of course, a much earlier version of English uh, versus, you know, contemporary English of yesterday. And he made a comment to me that made me realize he just wasn't understanding the way language works. He, he talked about Beowulf as if this is, this is English. It's just really, really difficult English. And the English of yesterday is just easy English. And he's not understanding that that's that language doesn't work like that. Language changes so much that over time, effectively, we have what is a different language. Beowulf is not English in a, any recognizable sense of today. Um, the the first line is just utterly unintelligible, and that's nobody's fault. That's just what happens. I'd like to think that writers should be aware that language changes over time, and that if you're reading Jane Austen or you're reading Daniel Defoe, you're going back in time, and you can't ape what they're doing. You can't use the words the same way unless you're purposely trying to sound archaic. Uh, and that's okay sometimes. Like um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is one where the the writer did that to with real arch wit, and I loved it. But that was kind of the conceit of the book. Well, that's not normally what we're doing. We need to be aware of what words mean now because we want to get our meaning across. That's the big lesson I would give. Yeah, that's so good. And you think about how in the King James, obviously like some of the Psalms and stuff today, they're beautiful. 
Um, Psalm 23, still, that's the one that people probably, you know, echoes in their minds the most, that it has such a, a timelessness to it on one sense, and also a very time-bound, uh, restrictive sense in another. And that as you talk about in the book that they are, they did try to write for the man on the street. Um, and that, that we should too. I, I think we've got to try to write not in highfalutin, um, overly, especially unless you're writing academic textbooks, but I'm, I'm assuming most of my listeners are not writing uh, for the Academy. They're writing for the people in the pew and they're writing for people in their small group and, and the average, you know, Christian, just like, just like me in, in the church and that we write for them and that it's okay. So like my book, humble Calvinism, it's, I, I'm going to be okay if it's not, uh, around a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, it's, it's a book for this time. Um, but with timeless truth, it, some of it will reach on, some of it will echo on hopefully by God's mercy, uh, into the future. But that just by nature of writing, um, if, if we're writing well to the man on the street with illustrations and modern vernacular, that some of that will age out and that that's okay. Yeah. And I am not saying that everything we write should be put on the lowest shelf. Some of my very favorite writers are Marilyn Robinson and Stanley Fish. In my judgment, they're probably not regenerated people. Each of them denies the gospel very explicitly in different ways, although Marilyn Robinson is an edge case because she also says amazingly true things about the Bible and knows the Bible well. Um, that's a longer discussion, but her prose is unbelievably awesome. And Stanley Fish's prose is too. He's a well-known prose stylist. He's written books on writing. These are not easy to read, especially Marilyn Robinson. Um, but they are intelligible to their audience, which is an educated audience. And that's okay. There are different registers in English and even different dialects and writers, based on their calling, will want to master whatever dialects and registers they need to use. Um, but in the church, because we want to use the King James again, this is just what's in my head, we want the the unbeliever to fall down and confess that God is in us of a truth, as 1 Corinthians 14 says. We've got to use intelligible language. That's at the place where I'm especially fearful of using highfalutin terms. So even if I stumble while I'm preaching and I accidentally use a big word, I always follow it up with a synonym that people can understand. I'm trying to honor 1 Corinthians 14. And I I'm, I'm getting a little impatient, to be honest, with the number of people who are telling me, well, you're just trying to dumb down the Bible. No, 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 no. Right. The Bible says that the Bible is hard to understand in places. Peter says that about Paul's writings. I'm not trying to dumb it down. I was very explicit about this in the book. And those few critics who've bothered to listen at all have not handled what I've said about that whatsoever. They did not listen to what I said. Um, they just want to paint me into a corner where I'm trying to dumb everything down. I think I've thought very carefully about this and why. Because I love my audience. I want people to understand God's word, want them to understand my writing. Um, if I'm going to use a big word, I'm going to do it advisedly for, for purposes that are edifying. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. And I, I think there's so many great lessons for writers, bloggers, um, preachers, teachers, uh, that we can communicate a timeless, um, wonderful God glorifying truths in a way that reach the, that reach the people we're trying to reach. Um, and that God's truth is, uh, also not bound by, bound by culture. Um, it's not restricted to, you know, to England in the 17th century, and it's not limited to, um, the, the Middle East in the first century, but it reaches all peoples, all cultures, all places, uh, to be communicated, um, in every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And so I think that's, Amen. that's the heart of our, our Lord. And that's the heart of our writing too, that here we are in this culture, this time, in this place, and let's write while we can, uh, to communicate that there is a risen Nazarene that we should follow. Amen. So totally with you. Well, Mark, where, where could people follow you on social media? Where, where would you point them to go? My blog, uh, by faith, we understand.com. I admit it doesn't get, uh, updated as often as it used to, because now I have more deadlines and the same paychecks. Uh, but <laughs> I do write for it on a regular basis still and put some stuff up there. Also, 
um, you can look at the Logos blog and just click on my name under one of the articles I've written and it'll show you the other ones that I've written. I don't really do anything on Twitter and yes, I'm on Facebook, but really my blog is my major social media platform. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And when you go check out his blog, you'll see that a brilliant design element there at the top, proof of what is un... and then it starts blurring out. You can't see it. It's unseen. At first, I thought my computer's like, why is it not loading that? Oh, that's that's intentional. That's brilliant. That's uh, due actually to my good friend, Dan Beltecki, whose site is madebypilcrow.com. He's an awesome designer in Romania, schooled in the U.S. He works for Mere Agency slash oh, Mere yeah. Church. Yeah. Who's, and I think Dan Hirama, or uh, what's his name? It's Hirama. Uh, yeah, Matt. Uh, Matt, sorry, right. He, I think he used to work for Desiring God. They do a lot of great stuff. And ironically, though, I'm a graphic designer on the side myself because that was my major many, many years ago. Uh, I still like to do it. Uh, I had somebody else design my blog because he's better than I am. Yeah, I, I love the the guys at Mirror Agency and, and, and Mirror Sites. They actually manage and host um, and my, my blog to keep it up and running and oh yeah and and looking good. So what what was the name uh, of the of the designer site? I'll put a link to him in the show notes. Yeah. I got a lot of link love today. Why not? Made by Pilcrow dot com. P i l c r o w. Yeah. W. That's another thing a writer should know. Now you learned it. I know. Wait. What's what's Pilcrow? I don't know what that is. It's, that's the paragraph symbol. It looks kind of like a backwards ah, filled in P. Look at that. Learn something new every day. Mm-hmm. Because well, you you might be you're definitely one of the smartest guests I've had on the show. So that's that's why I'm I'm, I'm learning tons today, and I'm sure my listeners are too. Never knew I just called it the paragraph symbol. That was it. Now it's a pilcro. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Links to all of Mark's stuff. You can go check it out. Definitely check out Authorized and go over. If you don't have Logos, totally recommend it. I use it every week. I use it for my sermons, use it for my writing, and not just to copy and paste Bible verses, but for actual study, research, and all those kinds of things. So go check that out, and whatever you do, just keep writing. Amen. Thank you for the opportunity to go on your show.